Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. No matter what kind of day, no matter what kind of week, no matter what kind of month you're having so far, I guarantee it's probably better than whatever John Gibson's going through these days with the Anaheim Ducks. It's you know just, what? I, yeah, what? It all started at the All-Star Game. It is what it is. It started before the All-Star Game when I believe his his spine started to splinter from having carried a horrible hockey team in Anaheim for months on end. But uh, it is it has fallen apart in a major way to the point where in the new uh, NHL Awards Watch that we have on ESPN.com today, plug, 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 uh, he's not even, he's not in the heart race anymore. Gone from the heart race. Why have him in the heart race? He's not, uh, there's nothing valuable about the Ducks at the moment. I don't even have him in the top three for the Vesna at this point. I, I think if you, if you realistically look at the Vesna right now, John Gibson's on the outside looking in when you have Freddie, Freddie Anderson playing the way he's playing. When you have Andre Vasilevsky who is going to, even if he's not one of the top three goalies, and I think he might be this year, he's clearly going to be in the top three when the voting comes through because the GMs will put him there. And then he's clearly not having the season that Robin Lehner's having because no one's having the season that Robin Lehner's having at the moment, which is kind of insane. But that's the thing that's happening right now with this goalie race is that John Gibson, who was a top my heart trophy ballot one month ago, goes through month from hell, not even counting the goals he gave up in the All-Star game when he, you know, threw the game to uh, piss off the Sharks fans, as is my conspiracy theory. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, played himself out of the heart race, played himself out of the Vesna race, and the Ducks are descending down the standings as we speak. I cannot wait to see how Bob Murray does not blow up this roster. I, I would like to know how he's going to do it. There's trade protection. I, I don't know what pieces he's going to move. I mean, he's kind of in the Carolina Hurricanes West type of situation where he, the glut of, of his talent is on the blue line and you're going to have to probably move somebody from there to get what you need up front and get younger and faster up front. But, yeah, it's it's a mess. And, and, and again, the first thing he's got to do is fire the bad coach. Fire the coach who is bad, whose team is bad for him, whose, whose, whose underlying analytics the entire season were horrendous and was only sniffing the playoff bubble because of a goaltender playing out of his gourd. Maybe maybe start by firing him even though he's your friend. Like maybe do that first is and my idea. Yeah. During the season. Yeah, after the season. All right, coming up on ESPN on Ice, there's a lot to talk about, especially when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Chris Johnson of Sportsnet, our good friend, is going to uh, join us to talk about the contracts on the way for Austin Matthews. Maybe it even gets signed as we do this show. And uh, and Mitch Marner. And then Jada Hefford will join us, the uh, commissioner of the Canadian Women's Hockey League, a hockey hall of famer with a wide-ranging and interesting discussion that Emily and I had with her about a great many hockey things. All that, Phil Kessel loves hot dogs, and much more coming up on the ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN on ice. It's the podcast for ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And uh, we're going to start talking about something hockey adjacent, which is dynasties. Uh, mm. As we've all lived through in the last couple of days, the extension of the uh, New England Patriots National Football League dynasty continues. Um, it's a sad, dark chapter in human history, as we can all agree. 
Um, and by that, I mean the inherent happiness that Boston sports fans have been feeling for the last decade or so. Indeed. And I think, you know, as we transition this to hockey talk, one of the most interesting things you can ask about the Patriots dynasty is how many surefire Hall of Famers are there, all those Patriots teams, besides Tom Brady and Bill Belichick? You think Kronk's a Hall of Famer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if his body of work's going to be enough, especially the if he Edelman, retires after this year. The Edelman debate's interesting beyond the obvious performance-enhancing drug aspect of it. Um, and if he was in baseball, he wouldn't have played in the Super Bowl, obviously, uh, because the Super Bowl is not in baseball, but also because in baseball, if you have a PD, th- PD, PED thing, you, know, you can't play in the World Series. Um, the, he's, he's sort of reminiscent of some guys that we see in hockey where they have incredible postseason numbers and then sort of middling regular season numbers. As a Devils fan, Claude Lemieux would be an example. I put out the Glenn Anderson example before, but I think he had a much better, uh, regular season career than did Edelman. Chris Osgood would be a good proxy too. Outstanding postseason goaltender for the Detroit Red Wings. Not exactly a great regular season player. But in football, it's like, it's, it's a real interesting conundrum as far as how you evaluate Hall of Fame potential with a player because there are so few teams in the NFL that make the cut in the postseason. It almost seems like it's unfair to so many other receivers who don't get the same opportunities that Edelman got to put up those numbers. Because other guys would have if they were in the playoffs a billion times because Tom Brady's their quarterback and Bill Belichick's their coach. But other guys don't get the same opportunities. Where in, in hockey, with 16 teams every single season, you know, you're probably getting into the postseason at some point. Well, yeah, and the reason I bring that up is that when I look at the current state of dynasties in the NHL, I think we've transitioned from, you know, the Islanders and the Canadiens and the Oilers uh, in the 70s and 80s and 60s um, to what we had in the post-lockout era, the 2004 lockout, which is many dynasties. Since the 04-05 lockout, three teams have won eight of the 13 Stanley Cups. That's the Pens, Kings, and Blackhawks. And when I look at those teams, specifically the Blackhawks and Penguins, you have a core of star players that you've been able to keep long-term for consistency. And we're seeing the tail end of that now and the downside of that now and the way teams don't want to structure their teams like that now. So I'm wondering if even that's going to taper off in the next uh, you know, decade we see. And I wonder if dynasties, even these mini dynasties, are going to become completely obsolete. Yeah, I mean – I guess it really comes like the the mini dynasty of the Chicago Blackhawks is 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 I mean I know that people quibble about whether or not a team that won three cups in six seasons is really a dynasty but I, I think within the context of the salary cap it completely is and the reason why that team was able to do what it did was the core and it's going to really come down to you know how long you maintain your core and then what you can do salary cap wise to build around them and and. I know Stan Bowman has sort of become a pariah in some circles as far as like his management of this team, but to win a cup and then jettison your supporting cast basically as he did when they said goodbye to Bufflin and Ladd and all those guys and then to kind of return back with a, with a different form of the team later on to win two more cups is, is insanely good. Like that, that is, that is a super impressive amount of general managing there beyond the idea that, that he inherited you know, a good number of these players from Dale Talon. So I give him enormous amounts of credit for what he did there. So it really comes down to what your core is and then how you color around the circles, which kind of ties into the conversation we're going to have with CJ in a bit about the Toronto Maple Leafs. So like the next level of it is I think that there's some more high-level maneuvering that's going to go on by GMs where we're seeing a difference in tendencies of the way we give out contracts, and that's because of the younger players coming in performing right away. And if you look mm-hmm. at the teams that we've talked about from the beginning of the season, as Stanley Cup contenders, it's like the Winnipeg Jets, the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, 
and I'll get to the Tampa Bay Lightning. They only really have one player like that in Braden Point, but they've got guys performing at a very high level on their entry-level contract, and mm-hmm. that's allowed them to kind of make for some mistakes of higher-paid players or whatever or be able to maximize it. And I think that now as we, we you know, integrate these younger players into the core and, and they become more and more important to today's NHL, I think that takes away from the dynasties where you're like, well, we've got our Duncan Keith and Brent Seabrook and our Jonathan Taze and Patrick Kane, so we're set for 10 years. Like, it's just not like that anymore. Yeah, and the Lightning are an interesting case, obviously, because of the way that team was constructed. And, and you know, it, it's it's full marks to two to two things. Full marks to Steve Eisman for basically staring down Steven Stamkos and being like, you can walk if you want, but you won't get to be a part of this thing, and also you won't live in Florida. And then and then getting uh, the deal that he wanted out of Stamkos. But it's also the tax benefit of Florida, man. Like, there mm-hmm. are certain contracts that you can hand out in certain parts of this world, and Nashville is a great example of that. Uh, that are going to have a, a higher return on on investment for players um, because of how much money they get to keep. And they it, also and, don't and, have any bad contracts, maybe besides Ryan Callahan. Like they they did a great job. Not oh yeah, for sure. Everyone. Yeah, they did a really good job. And and again, like the window of opportunity to win is this season because they're going to have to figure out some things on defense and and probably jettison some money to fit in a guy like Braden Point, for example, who I think is probably looking at a bridge contract at best to kind of keep this thing together. But the Lightning are another good example of that team that right now has a a core of guys that are going to be locked up for the next few seasons and and can put something together for for a couple of times but again it's hard like that's why it's so impressive that the kings and the blackhawks and the penguins and maybe even the capitals if they can do it again this season have done what they've done because it's just hard to do this year after year from a stamina standpoint and from a consistency standpoint but here's the broader question i wanted to get at in the wake of this horrific patriots super bowl victory um is the nhl hurting not having dynasties not having an islanders team that wins four in a row not having a canadians team that in the span of eight seasons went to the finals eight times and won the cup six times like would it be better for hockey from a marketability standpoint to a casual sports fan to have super teams that people can look at and be like yeah i definitely have to make time to watch this team because they're basically like you know brazil in the world cup like they are the best they are the apex of this sport and i gotta i gotta make sure that that, that i see the golden state warriors of the nhl when they're on my television i waffle between this because when i was watching the super bowl i'm watching with a bunch of fans you know my friends and i'm like who's everyone rooting for and a handful of them are rooting for the patriots even though they hate them for the sole reason saying i'm experiencing history and i think that's kind of what you're lending at there yeah. I think from a marketability standpoint, players' individual profiles can rise in the playoffs if they're playoff performers. And that would benefit from seeing the same guys year after year. Like if we consistently saw P.K. Subban in the Stanley Cup final every year doing some crazy antics and on and off the ice, I, I think that would raise his profile even more. Uh, that said, um, I think one of the exciting things about hockey is that the Stanley Cup playoffs is the most unpredictable. It's, you know, there's the most parity there. Anybody can win on any given night. And I think hockey is kind of leaning into that. So mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. I mean, the Tampa Bay Lightning are at a historic pace right now for regular season points. Like, are they going to be appointment television for anyone in the playoffs that's not a huge hockey fan? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the tough part about it is that. It, it almost feels like if you do have dynasties, they've got to be in the right place. Like when, when the Red Wings were the Red Wings, right? When they had Lidstrom and they were, you know, uh, adding all this high priced veteran talent and, uh, it was a pre-capped, star-studded, just cavalcade of Hall of Famers. Like that felt like a team that even a casual fan's going to tune into because it's the Detroit 
Red Wings. If it's like the Flyers like that, it's the Flyers. If it's the Penguins, it's the Penguins. Even Chicago, I mean, it's the Blackhawks. It was this gigantic resurgence of this franchise, and, and it became a juggernaut where all of a sudden they're playing in every outdoor game because everybody wants to watch them. But when it's Tampa or it's Winnipeg, it's kind of different, right? So, like, I, I I feel you on that. I feel like you almost pick and choose. And New England, uh, you look at the Patriots, uh, you know, objectively, like they're they're not in that glamour franchise vein of of it being like, you know, the NFL films teams of like the Bears and 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 uh, and, and the Steelers and, and 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 teams like that when they started this run. But they're definitely there now, and I think it's because of a lot of it's the geography. They're a geographic team. They're a geographic draw, and I just don't know if the Lightning necessarily have that same advantage. I am um, I'm a long long supporter of of the luxury tax versus salary cap setup for the NHL. <laughs> I hate forced parity. Um, I, I know that, you know, there are certain times when it's advantageous for growing the sport, and there are certain times when I look at the Western Conference wildcard race, and I just stick up my middle fingers at it, because it's a joke that you have 105 teams in contention, all of them with a negative goal differential outside of Colorado. Uh, and, and that's the parody that Gary Bettman wants for this league. Um, so, I, I, as a luxury tax versus salary cap guy, I, 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 by default, am a dynasty guy. I do think that the NHL is stronger when you have certain teams and certain markets that are rolling through uh, uh, teams uh, and slicing through them uh, like a like a giant uh, wielding an axe. I think there's something to that. Um, but I understand the counter argument that that's maybe not the best thing for the sport when the same team is constantly playing for your championship. Because I, I mean, as much as as there's been a debate about it, like I do think there's patriot fatigue. I I. Are you that excited? Like, are you that excited? It's not, it's not like Mike Tyson in the 1980s. It's like, we're not all waiting with bated breath to see who can take down the champ. We've seen the champ taken down. Now they're just there and they're just trying to add to the resume. My only counter argument to that was how great the buildup to that game was with Tom Brady even like creating his false narrative saying, look, like all the haters out there, everyone didn't believe in us, which was totally false narrative and he was totally bloating it up. But at least it gave us a storyline heading into the game. I don't know. Dynasties are whatever. All right. Coming up, we're going to talk about a potential dynasty in uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs with our good friend Chris Johnson. All right, joining us is Chris Johnson of Sportsnet to talk about the news of the day, the week, the month, maybe the year. Austin Matthews signs a very lucrative second contract. It is $58.17 million. That's an 11.634 for number 34, AAV. But the contract is only for five seasons which was a, a, an interesting wrinkle for some of the other second contracts that we've seen around the league for young stars. CJ, tell us why this contract makes sense for Kyle Dubas and the Leafs. Well, I think any contract that has Austin Matthews uh, as a member of the Leafs through to basically age 27 or the end of age 26, that makes sense. You know, the only thing that hasn't made sense with this whole process is that they didn't uh, go through this negotiation in a more meaningful way in the summer when Perhaps uh, they would have been able to get Austin Matthews signed at a little bit more team-friendly of a number. But, you know, I think that that's all kind of washed away now because, you know, the Leafs now have a pretty defined Stanley Cup window that includes uh, the rest of this season in the playoffs and the five years beyond it. Uh, when They now have uh, Austin Matthews and William Melander signed, John Tavares has six more years after this one. And, and, you know, I think that they'll have to live with, with some of the, the repercussions of that. But, you know, to my eyes, it's the start of uh, – you know, maybe stars uh, flexing their muscle a little earlier in this league. 
you know, the, the fact that Austin was able to get that high of a cap number with only giving up one UFA year. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good deal for the Leafs because he's, he's worth it. He's uh, that good a player. And I think letting him get any closer to July 1st and the possibility of offer sheets and all the conversation around that, I mean, wiping that away is a, is a positive for the Leafs. Chris, so much of this is going to be in the large context of what this means for Toronto and their Stanley Cup window and yada yada. I'm just curious about the right now. A storyline we talked at nauseam over the summer was about the captaincy. Where does that stand now? Sorry, I didn't uh, hear you properly there, Emily. The, cap- the captaincy. Who's going to be the captain? Where does that stand? Oh, he's going to be the captain. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's any question that it's going to be Matthews. You know, it won't be announced as part of this contract, or you know, I wouldn't expect probably until the off season. But you know, what we've seen from him this year is, I think, you know, some personal growth. Uh, for Austin Matthews, uh, he didn't like the way the season ended after a second NHL year. Struggled to playoffs against Boston, had uh, a blow up or two with the media, and I think you know he really looked uh, fully at his game and and everything going on in the off season. And you know he's taken on much more of a leadership type of role in the way he deals with reporters, which is an important part of his job in a city like Toronto, just because of how many of them there are and and you know how rabid the fan base is and and. You know, even in speaking with John Tavares, I think he understands uh, that the, it's very, very, very likely, if not already written in, in stone, that uh, the captaincy will uh, fall to Austin Matthews. And, you know, I, I don't have any issue with that uh, if that's the way the Leafs go. You know, as I, as I say, I don't think we'll do it before the playoffs because there's no reason to add any more onto his plate or onto the expectations for the team or just, you know, on, on his shoulders personally. But I would think uh, sometime in the summer we'll hear that announcement officially. When I talked to Matthews at the All-Star game, it was pretty obvious that he knew begrudgingly that whatever he decided contractually was going to impact whatever the Leafs and Mitch Marner come up with contractually. So the question then becomes from a Leafs perspective, how much of this AAV, this 11634, is in anticipation of how anything higher of that, higher than that would have affected Marner's AAV? That must be there in part. I think the Leafs' willingness to to have this go less than than eight years uh, might be partly due to that. You know, because to sign them to eight years, if you extrapolate the numbers and you know, knowing a little bit how the discussions went, you know, he was looking at a number above Connor McDavid because he's signing this, you know, two seasons in terms of cap numbers later, and uh, you know that would have probably created some issues with Mitch Marner and certainly impacted the Leafs' ability to have some flexibility in these immediate years ahead. Uh, you know, I think the Marner case is going to be fascinating now. You know, his agent is, is holding firm on this idea that he won't negotiate during the rest of the season, that, that Mitch just wants to, to focus on hockey. But, you know, I think the Leafs are going to put a real push on uh, to see if uh, they can kind of eliminate the circus all in one go and, and, you know, see if there's a number now that makes sense for him. You know, perhaps the, the answer for Mitch Marner's next contract is something even shorter than five years, you know, maybe a, a three-year uh, kind of bridge deal like Nikita Kucherov, you know, did quite recently with the Tampa Bay Lightning before signing his huge extension. Wouldn't Marner's reaction be that he'd be pissed off? Like, to me, it's like Austin Matthews was going to set the value for his contract. And Austin Matthews decided to take a deal that was that was team and, and, and cap friendly in comparison to a blockbuster eight-year term. He takes that eight-year term, uh, a, a rising tide lifts all all, all, all ships, Marner is going to get his. I feel like I feel like Austin Matthews just cost Mitch Marner a bunch of money. To be honest with you, wow, I haven't really thought that through. I mean, I do think that 
Mitch Marner's agent is going to push for a deal that's really close to Austin Matthews, if not exactly what he got. And I, I don't know that he's going to get anywhere with that. I, I get the feeling he's one of those guys that as long as you're paying him well, he's happy to play hockey. I mean, he seems he, yeah. he's still very young in the way he comes about. He's got kind of almost like a childlike, and I don't say that in a demeaning way, joy of the game. And, and I don't get the feeling he himself is that wrapped up in the business. But obviously, he's got an agent and he's got parents and, and lots of people around him that care about that stuff. So, you know, I don't think that this is going to be the basis of anything personal between those two because it just doesn't seem to me to be a Mitch Garner's character to, to, to worry about that stuff. But, you know, it could be a point of contention in, in, within the camps, I guess, of the two, two guys. And, you know, when, when you've seen guys in the past like Crosby and Malkin Mm-hmm. Sign the same second contract. Taves exactly. and Kane sign the same second contract. I mean, I don't think that's likely to happen here. I just don't see the Leafs giving Marner the, the deal that he just gave to Austin Matthews. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like Sid took less. Didn't didn't Malkin get more than Sid AAV on on one of their other contracts? Because that was the third just, contract. Yeah, that's because the third Sid's contract, second right? deal yeah. was when he was allowed to still sign twelve years, and when Malkin was negotiating, they they put the curtail on that. So he actually got a higher average salary on on his deal. But their second deal is you could argue Malkin took less because he came up a year after Sid and, you know, he signed the exact same deal a year later, which is represents a smaller percentage of the cap and all those types of things. Uh, you know, I think that there's a case to be made. He could have pushed for more, but there was an internal ceiling set by, by Sidney Crosby. You know, now there's, there's certainly an internal ceiling for the foreseeable future with the Leafs. And, um, you know, the, the fact that Leafs, I think, are going to want to keep Marner somewhere in the $9 million range uh, it's going to be tough, and it, and it might, it really might go to the summer. Uh, you know, if if they they can't bridge the gap, and you know that's that's the the tightrope that Kyle Dubas has had to walk in taking over this job when he did is that yeah. you know there were some pretty difficult decisions right out of the box, and we've seen him have a three month standoff with one young player. He gets Matthews done now, but but it's not as though he can put his feet up and, and relax. I think there's still some some tough decisions to be made. You're around this team all the time. You just alluded to it, the William Nylander situation. Do you think both sides, looking back, wish they handled it any differently? I think William Nylander might have, to be honest. You know, he's really struggled. He's, he's coming on now and, and, you know, maybe wiping away some of that. But, you know, he had one goal in his first 22 games after returning from that layoff. I, I don't think – I think he's been humbled a little bit by it and that he, he didn't ever imagine it would take him so long to get back up to speed after missing that much of the season and – I'm sure deep down uh, he might wonder if it was worth it to, to fight over the amount of money they're fighting over. Um, you know, and, and even Kyle Dubas has expressed some regret that it dragged on as long as it did. Uh, you know, I think some of it was born out of the fact that, that Kyle was hired in late May uh, to become the general manager. And, and you know, it, was, it wasn't that the summer, I think, it wasn't the way to launch into that such an important summer for the team uh, to not have him be in that position sooner. And it impacted what happened with, with Nylander. It impacted why Matthews and Marner, why more concerted efforts, I think, weren't made to sign them. And, and you're sort of seeing the, the tremors of it now. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the Leafs are going to regret the, the salary cap number uh, that they signed William Nylander to. It's certainly a movable contract down the road if they decide that a trade is the only way forward just because the money, so much of it is paid out up front. And I think that will be viewed as a positive thing by, by many teams around the league. And so... You know, it was almost one of those those necessary evils to go through. But, you know, certainly I know William Elander, it almost feels like this year has been a bit of a lost year for him. Maybe there's still time to get it back on track now that we're in February and he has started to play better. But uh, it, it, it took a toll on him and the organization. 
For sure. Last one for me, CJ, and thanks again for your time, man, on a busy day. Uh, this Matthews contract. Now, when Nylander signed there were, and, and, and went through what he went through, there was a lot of thought of that kind of being something that would affect other players in his situation, kind of set a template. I'm sure there's going to be people that look at this Matthews deal and say, okay, Sebastian Ajo, on and on and on. But all the guys that are Braden Point, all the guys that are up for RFA in this coming summer, could this five-year deal be a template for them? Is this going to be a Leaf-centric type situation with Matthews, or is this something where you think there could be trickle-down to other guys that are in similar spots around the league? Oh, I think there's trickle-down because, you know, Austin Matthews has got – a percentage of the cap that's larger than what Jack Eichel got and, and only had to do five years instead of eight. And yeah. so he'll be coming up again sooner. You know, I, I think that, that that now becomes the comparable for any high-end restricted free agent uh, that they're going to negotiate off this Matthews number. I think we'll see a bunch of five-year or six-year uh, guys in their second deal, as, as we did in sort of the previous generation of stars. That was the way forward for, for Crosby, Taves, Malkin, Kane, John Tavares did a six-year deal. You know, that, that used to be kind of the norm. I think that this will reestablish a norm, and I think it's given a lot of players the ability to ask for more money in that spot than ever before, which actually just makes sense. I think intuitively we understand uh, what we're we all raving about, all the young stars in the sport. They, they should be paid, and they're going to get paid sooner now. You know, that's that's sort of my big takeaway here. And, and, you know, it might not be a great moment for Mitch Marner, but I think this is a pretty good outcome for a lot of the stars around the league uh, who now are going to be in a position to – to not only do a pretty big deal on their second contract, but still only be 26 or 27 years old doing a third contract when I think that they can you know, expect to, to make even more riches down the line. So I, I do think this will probably be more of uh, a trendsetter than even the Nylander negotiation. I think, if anything, uh, because of how he played after, that's going to become a last-case scenario again for guys. You know, Because, yeah, you might get your money after waiting until December 1st, but it's not going to be a very fun experience doing it. Uh, if, if players can sign five-year deals that are, are based off of this one, um, you know that that's that's going to be a positive, I think, for young guys uh, coming out of this. All right, Chris. Before we let you go, I'm going to ask you one quick hit question: Just a number, yes or no? Zero point five over under offer sheets this summer. <laughs> I'm going to say over. Yeah, the oh, year. But I don't. I don't. If you had to set it at one point five, I'd probably say under. I don't think there's going to be a a whack of them, but I, I think we are finally going to see one this summer. Oh, man. Well, congratulations to whoever gets one, and it'll probably be Aho. Thanks, buddy. You're the best for finding time for us. Love your podcast. Thanks for having me on. There are, in fact, uh, non-Leaf-centric things going on in the world of hockey, despite you know the center of the hockey universe using its gravity to pull us all towards it. Carter Hart, ladies and gentlemen. A miracle on ice. The miracle not being that he's helped the Philadelphia Flyers back into the wild card race. The miracle being that there is an effective goalie in Philadelphia playing hockey, which is uh, maybe the first time in over 20 years <laughs> that this has happened. <laughs> it's so, a cool story. It's good. What, what's incredible to me, this story, is that there's a totally parallel story going on in the Western Conference. It's like that Spider-Man meme where they're both just looking at each other. <laughs> and that's the St. Louis Blues. And Carter Hart is Jordan Biddington. And when I see both of these teams, um, and I especially follow the Blues, but I know the, uh, the Flyers were dealing with some of this. It's a lack of confidence that they were playing with early in the season. I know it's boiling it down to something very simple, but that's just what it was. Guys just weren't feeling themselves, and they weren't feeling the team. Well, when you get a young goalie that you, you kind of feel like you need to play a little harder in front of, and especially in the case of Philadelphia, they know this is a prize guy. They don't want to screw it up. 
all of a sudden you're blocking more shots. Your penalty kill looks better as it has in the last couple weeks. The power play has been on significantly. And I, I think all of that is just kind of gelling together. And all of a sudden you now have two coaches, uh, which maybe are going to, you know, interim tags taken away and then they can get the job next year. I'm feeling myself. Um, I agree. And, and it's been fun to see the confidence build and particularly in the blues. I talked to Ryan O'Reilly about this briefly at the all-star game about the fact that, you know, once the, the back end is taken care of is, is Bennington has played extraordinarily well for them. Um, everything else kind better of better too. Yeah. Everything kind of falls in. Yeah. Everything falls in place. The confidence builds all, other parts of the, of, of the machine that were failing all of a sudden come back, come back online. It's the same thing as you saw with the devils last year with Keith Kincaid. Like it's one thing for Taylor Hall to, go on the tear that he went on to win the Hart Trophy. It's But if, if nobody's back there to stop the puck, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, as the Colorado Avalanche were finding out this year. So, you know, th- when you get that competent goaltending um, and, and you fix that part of your game, it really does amazing things to a team that looked like it was moribund at one point. And in the Flyers' case, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you have the Carter Hart thing going on, and right now I think he's one win away from – uh, tying Jocelyn Tebow's record for the longest winning streak for a goalie under the age of 21. It's, it's a remarkable start. And I, and I have Carter Hart in my top three for the Calder right now. That's partially based on the 16 games that he's played, which aren't a lot, but it's also based on the trajectory of this guy and wh- how I, I mean, listen, if there's a Philadelphia goaltender that gets them within a sniff of the playoffs, the PHWA is going to vote for that man for the Calder Trophy. Okay, let's, let's be honest here. Is he going to have enough support to get past Elias Pettersson? Probably not if, if Pettersson stays healthy. But I do think he's going to have enough support to knock he's going to out of the top three, especially with Rasmus Dahlin doing what he's done, you know, to solidify himself as the best rookie defenseman this year. So I think what Hart's doing is great. Um, and, uh, I do, I think it's going to necessarily mean that the Flyers get to the playoffs. I don't know. They're a streaky team. We've seen them go up. We've seen them go down. Uh, right now they look good. Um, it does make the trade deadline a little bit more interesting insofar as what they do with a guy like Wayne Simmons, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, but it's a great story. And, uh, and it's the story that we all thought could be written when Carter Hart came up. I remember saying on this very podcast that what if all of our, Jellybean dreams of uh, Joel Quenville bouncing on over to Philadelphia to replace Scott Gordon at the end of the season and becoming the uh, the mustache man behind a Philadelphia bench. What if that doesn't happen because Carter Hart comes up, the Flyers get within playoff range, and all of a sudden Scott Gordon is seen as the guy there? And that's the scenario that could be playing out before our very eyes. I'm really curious to see how we treat this five years from now because I think revisionist history is going to be a huge thing. I think people are going to say, well, Hextall was just so patient, and if he had started him out of camp because he had a great camp, they never would have been in this position. He would have kept his job. Uh, the guy with a similar-sounding name would have kept his job, and <laughs> we would never have been in this situation when now Card is winning the Vezina, Consmite, and Calder Trophy all in the same of course, season. all the same time. Um, but the truth is, is that, look, he did look good in camp, but I do believe Hextall was right that he needed – he was so bullish on him going to the American League, and he clearly needed it. He struggled at first. Uh, so here we are. But we talk about the Calder. I just wanted to make a great announcement on this podcast. I have finally done us the service. I have not gotten Greg to remember that it's Mira Heiskanen and not Miko, but I did learn that it's Eliash Petersen. Yeah, I just I just didn't use his first name. I'm tired of screwing it up. Um, I'm just I'm excited. I, I think I think there's going to be some people in Philly that disagree with 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 your notion, even though it's correct. And they they were like, you know, you know, Hextall left them in the minors too long. We could have been winning the cup by now. You know, Wawa, Carson Wentz, Nick Foles. 
Um, but in actuality, he was playing like garbage earlier this year, and Hextall probably made the right decision to keep him down there to percolate a little bit before uh, he came up to save the Flyers' season. Do you know what's something One that's goalie- interesting? Oh, good. Flyers related. Dave Hextall resurfaced. He bubbled over the surface of wherever he's been hiding in Sweden, where I believe he's learning from Ricard Gronborg behind the bench, and I find mm-hmm. that fascinating. Uh, the other goalie uh, news this week: Larry Brooks reporting that Sergei Bobrovsky is being looked at by the Philadelphia uh, Philadelphia by the uh, uh, well, the Flyers should look at him mournfully and tearfully uh, by the Florida Panthers is potentially acquiring him before the trade deadline to then potentially sign him to an eight-year max deal in the offseason. He gets a taste of that South Beach life. Um, he sees that they have one Russian. Uh, he gets very happy, and they sign him to a max deal. Do you think Sergei Bobrovsky could be the solution to the Panthers' goaltending problems, which, again, should be stated, have completely subverted the team even when it was going well this year? Here's the problem. Short-term, yes, I do think so. And this is no knock on Florida's goaltending because, look, I think Roberto Luongo is still a perfectly capable goalie and has proved in short stretches that he can be the goalie for this team. He's just not available. He can't stay healthy. Um, in the short term, I believe Bobrovsky, I think I'm a little higher on him than you are. I, I still believe that he could uh, fix his playoff woes. I have given one more opportunity. Um, you know, he could help them out tremendously. The problem is, is that they're going to sign him to an eight-year deal. That takes him to, what, almost 40 years old. And uh, typically, goaltenders just don't improve in their mid-30s. Like, I, it's just very rare. Uh, Tim Thomas is maybe like a late bloomer or someone like that. But yeah. Um, you can't think of many other examples. So, uh, look, when they made this trade with the Penguins, um, they shipped out two very good players, Nick Bugstad and Jared McCann, um, and they both had term on their deal. So they cleared $5 million for this summer. It's very clear they're trying to make a splash in free agency. I think they've got a good chance at Bob, either side of the trade deadline or over the summer. I think they've got as good a chance as anyone at Panarin right now. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah. Oh, yeah, that would seem pretty enthusiastic, like you want to interject. Oh, no, I was going to say that Panarin and, and Dadnoff are, were teammates in Russia. And the Russians like they love South Florida. They, and, they, and, and they love Florida. Yeah, it's going to be a whole thing. So I, I feel I feel like that, that you're right. If they are starting to get the uh, you know the, their ducks in a row for signing one of those guys, it's a distinct possibility. I will say this about about the idea of, of you know, like you said, signing that big money goaltender to fix your, your problems. I mean – I kind of feel like in the league right now, you look around, you're seeing like Robin Lehner as the solution in, in, on Long Island. You're, you're seeing, you know, Ben Bishop, who, yeah, signed a pretty big contract, but by no means was it an eight year term, um, as the solution in Dallas and, you know, here and there and everywhere. Dave Riddich, for God's sakes, going up in Calgary and, and being the goaltender that they need. I think that there are ways to do this without committing eight years to Sergey Bobrovsky, especially at his age, but, Again, if if you're the Florida Panthers and you have that much money invested up front um, and you feel pretty good about yourself and you're just like, all I need is a competent regular season goalie to get me over the hump, and by that we mean get the franchise in the playoffs, which never happens, maybe it's worth the price. Who's to say? Um, somebody's going to pay him, obviously. All right. Uh, Jana Heffert is, uh, is on the show this week. It's a really good conversation that Emily and I had with the commissioner of the Canadian Women's Hockey League uh, at the All-Star Game. We go and touch on a lot of topics, including a lot of discussion about the one league stuff. Uh, so enjoy this conversation with a Hockey Hall of Famer. And now joining us is a very special guest. She's recently named to the Hockey Hall of Fame, and she is currently the commissioner of the CWHL. And it's Jana Heffer. Jana, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So, Jana, you have taken this job, I believe, it was over the summer? The end of August, yeah. Yeah. What has surprised you? Uh, a lot surprised me. Um, you know, I, I was excited about the opportunity to 
have an impact on the women's game um, at a, a high level. Um, hopefully, uh, keeping the players in mind and knowing how I felt as a player and what I thought I wanted to happen and where I feel like the game should go. Mm-hmm. Um, but along mm-hmm. with that comes uh, the business side of the game and um, you know the political side of things. Um, Working through contract negotiations, um, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of aspects to it. Um, you know, we're sending teams to China and the implications of of that, and just the travel that our teams encompass. And um, so, I'm learning, but I've got a, a lot of good people around me that are guiding me through, and hopefully, I'm bringing the the playing side a little bit to it as well. So, let's start as big as we possibly can and work our way back. Where do you want the game the game to go? <laughs> Well, I think, like most people in the game, we want to be in a place where we have one league with yeah. all the best players, and that's how I felt when I was a player, and it's how I still feel now. And um, so we're working to get there. It's a it's a complicated road, and uh, you know, trying to navigate the right way, and keeping in mind that when we do it, we want to make sure it's a success. So mm-hmm. making sure we do it right is is really important. How important would it be when you do create one league? Because I think it's a when and not if. Yeah, the NHL does get involved. I believe that's a big part of it. Um, I think that uh, the NHL brand can take the game to a level that uh, without that it'll, it'll take a lot longer, certainly. Um, I think, you know, from a playing point of view, that I know the players want to associate themselves with the league. They have so many resources. I think uh, it's kind of a no-brainer that if we want to take it to that next level, they have to be a part of it. We hear from people that don't necessarily like the idea of the league being involved. I don't, you've probably heard from these people too, fans of either the CWHO or the NWHL that are, are maybe not necessarily say stay away from the NHL, but are suspicious of the NHL's involvement and, and getting involved and maybe almost, you know, taking away the identities of these leagues because a bunch of old white men are running leagues. <laughs> like to, to put it on yeah. the table. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you say when you hear those, uh, those sort of fears or criticisms? I mean, I think I think we're it's a new age, and I think that um, I'm not really worried about gender or the politics or anything. It's just about how do we get the game to a better place. And I think, as I said, they have the resources to do that. They've got the the brand strength. Um, certainly, you know, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's their league, if it's them being a part of the league, but I think they also will lean on the history of the game and the people that have been involved. And I think it'll be a collaborative effort to make sure we elevate the game. So one thing your league has, which I find fascinating, is a team in China, and you mentioned that. (laughs) What have you learned, or, you know, in your couple months about, A, what that imprint is like, and B, you know, is it successful in growing the game, and what kind of relationship do you have with the local community? Yeah, it's been uh, really interesting, because I, I, uh, last year before I took the job, I knew it was a part of the league, but I didn't necessarily understand the whole relationship, Um, but I think it's, it's pretty incredible what it's providing for hockey in China, which um, I had a chance to be there in September, and the growth of the game there is amazing. Uh, it's exponential. Obviously, the population, the density there, uh, it's a huge market. But we also feel as a league, we're helping to grow the game globally. Um, their involvement with the CWHL is helping their national program. They're trying to get uh, some North American players that have Chinese descent that eventually can be a part of their programs. Um, so I think that uh, there's good intentions for growing the game globally on both sides. It's an opportunity for our players to uh, travel to a place they probably wouldn't otherwise uh, play the game. Yeah. 
the North American players that are over there now and the, the European players are treated very well. Um, they're playing in NHL arena over there with great uh, resources associated with it. So I think overall it's been a really great experience and I, I think it's it's a pretty cool thing that we're, I don't know, we were talking about this earlier, if there's any other league, any sport, any gender that spans the distance that our league does, which is so. uh, pretty cool. That really limits the type of players that might sign there. Uh, the ones that sign in China? Yes. Yeah, so that's for them. They're there to be professional athletes, and, and they get incorporated into the community. <laughs> um, they do a lot of work outside of just playing the game within the league. They actually, I think, work for uh, you know the KRS organization in growing the game. So they have a bigger job than just playing in the league, but I think from what I understand, it's been a great experience for them. Yeah, kind of hard to play in China and make your shift at the bank. Yeah. To, uh, <laughs> at the NHL All-Star Game, they, you know, Gary Bettman was talking... Uh, a bit about the women's game and and uh, the potential of one one league. Um, have you, what kind of conversations have you had with the NHL when it comes to that issue? I mean, are, is it an ongoing dialogue? Is it something that it hasn't really happened yet until both leagues come to the table, or, or where's, where does that stand? I think it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. Uh, we've had sort of ongoing conversations, and uh, the one thing I can say about Gary is everything he said publicly is is what he said privately. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is where they stand. They don't really want to get involved as long as there's two leagues that exist. Um, so it, it's a challenging situation, and um, I think especially being an athlete, but that level of patience is really challenging. You know, we want everything to happen faster. Um, but I think that their interest in the game is a positive thing. I think, you know, we see that as an end goal, and it's like, how do we close that gap and make sure we, we make it happen as soon as possible? One thing I'm always passionate about is uh, marketing the game. And so I'm curious, as your perspective as a former player but now a sports executive, um, one of the reasons we love hockey is it's the ultimate team game. But that often means that players do not feel comfortable going off and getting their own endorsement deals and their own marketing. How have you found that to be important for growing the game and making sure we get momentums after big events like the Olympics? Mm-hmm. And have you been, you know, outreaching to players saying, look, you can go pursue these things. It's, it's okay. Or, yeah. or do you not feel that way? No, I, I think it's, it's huge for selling the game. And one thing when I came into this role, one of my priorities was to increase the visibility of the players, um, the awareness around the game. But I believe that any sport, again, regardless of gender, is built around its superstars. And if we could fault women's hockey in the past, I think it's that we haven't developed enough of those. It was always about one or two players. That's the only people that that the fans knew. And I believe we have, just in the CWHL, you know, six to eight legitimate superstars. Mm -hmm. You know, we have three of them here this weekend in, in Fast and Johnson. You see what Decker did yesterday. and um, She's you, okay. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. So whenever we talk about women's hockey on the podcast, we always get murdered because uh, people are like, you always talk about the merger stuff. You never talk about the league. So tell us about the league. What, what, are, your, what are some of your favorite storylines? What are some of the teams that, uh, if, if people are looking to check it out, you know, should should definitely make time to see? Yeah. Well, I mean, a huge storyline for us this year was um, getting Hillary Knight to Montreal, getting Brianna Decker, Casey Bellamy, Alex Rigsby. So those American players coming to our league was a huge boost for us. Um, the the storyline around how many, as we just talked about, superstars we have in this league. So you go and you watch a... The two top teams right now would be Montreal and Calgary. Mm-hmm. And the number of Olympians on the ice is amazing. Um, the China story is always a big story for us. So, um, you know, we're, we're coming off a, a really good all-star weekend um, where the players, I think, really love that experience. And now we're getting pretty close to the end of the season, the run-up to the Clarkson Cup and the championship. So it's an exciting time of year for us. And um, I think that the season's going to play out to be pretty exciting for the fans. Mm-hmm. That's one for me. 
what's the Hall of Fame like? Man, I was I was there, and like it is it is hard for me to conceive what that is like. A the notion of immortality, mm-hmm. because even though I'm a fan of like vampires and stuff, I can't <laughs> even you know conceive immortality. Yeah. But also just the thought that you are invited to one of the most exclusive parties that anyone could ever be invited to. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't even know if it's really settled in. You know, when they, you first get the call, and it's so surreal, and um, you know, obviously, just this excitement of sharing that with the people closest to you, and and then reflecting back on all those people that played a part of your career is is a big part of it. So that's been nice to be able to kind of you know thank those people and appreciate them, and then you get to Hall of Fame weekend, and can't believe like it's there, and it's this weekend that's jam-packed with fun cool things that your friends and family are all a part of and um i was excited to have my kids kind of they don't really get what's going on but i think through that weekend yeah like (laughs) i think through that weekend they started to understand a little bit and even just the idea of them you know we got to ride in a limo to the induction and they walked on the red carpet and those are mom's a big deal (laughs) so those are things that they won't forget which was pretty special um and then now it's um you know one of the things i think from that weekend i realized too is it's this exclusive club but once you're in it it's like you, you never get out one but People are instantly, you know, your your best friends, and so you come here. And I saw Willie O'Ree this morning down there, and we got to reminisce on the weekend. And I had a chance to see Gary earlier, and um, so those relationships are are moments that all of us will remember forever, oh, yeah. and that's that's pretty neat. And ten years of the class reunion, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Women, women general manager. When's it happening? NHL. I think that I've I've often thought that that's going to be the, the step. Is that you know we're going to have a woman that works yeah. her way through scouting, works her way through player development, yeah. eventually gets that shot probably before we get a coach and then she'll hire the coach right right right. so when do you how do you think how do you think that path works and when do you think it's a possibility you know i I think there's some really intelligent like hockey iq women and and obviously strong business women so could it happen now yes Hmm. um will it happen soon i hope (laughs) i wish i could give you a timeline i mean i think that that's going to be uh you know an incredible moment for for women but for hockey yeah and uh i think there's going to be you know whoever has the courage to do that first i think they're going to reap a lot of rewards out of it and um and i I think on the coaching side again i think there's lots of women that could step in right now and do that and uh hopefully we'll see it sooner than later cool well we really appreciate your time and we can't wait to have you back on awesome thanks for having me thank you I learned a ton from Jana, and I would just love one day to discover what her league is like in China and their imprint there. And you know that Discover is also the official credit card of the NHL, Greg? And with Discover, you can show how much you love your team everywhere you shop with a personalized card featuring your favorite NHL team's logo and colors. But no matter what team you root for, Discover is committed to rewarding all of their new card members with cash back match. Only Discover offers a dollar-for-dollar match for all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. Automatically. No caps, no sign-ups. Redeem your rewards in any amount, at any time, and they never expire. So with all that extra cash, you can treat yourself to center ice seats at the game, your favorite player's jersey, or maybe some new headphones to listen to your favorite podcast on. So try it and believe it at discover.com slash NHL. Only for new card members, limitations apply. Indeed. Limitations do not apply for our affection for this next segment, which is Sash Got Your Number. With a latitude of 64 degrees north, this player has the northernmost hometown of any active North American player. Who is he? 
Yeah, I was going to say Matt Zuccarello because I thought we were talking uh, North American. Of any North American player. So it's got to be... Jeez, I don't know where guys from Canada are born. Uh, maybe it's a guy from Maine. No, it's got to be someone from like Newfoundland. You think it's a Newfie? Right? Isn't Newfoundland mm. up there? This is really embarrassing. This is, you know, I wish Exposure I wish we had our our, our 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 NHL uh, atlas and roster in front of us. Um, I'll I'll go with um, I'll go I'll I'll, I'll go with uh, it's a tie between Sidney Crosby and uh, Nathan McKinnon from Cole Harbor. I love it. I'm gonna go with I got nothing. Teddy right. Purcell, he's a newfie. Is he still, there it is. is he Let's playing? see. Washington Capitals goalie Phoenix Copley oh, oh, from North Pole, Alaska. <laughs> right, the North Pole is not the real geographic North Pole. But close enough. Son of a right, because of course Phoenix Copley just signed a new contract with Washington. Sash st- ripped from the headlines, Law and Order style, trying to get us with a current player and a current. Yeah, there you go, Phoenix Copley. Yikes! I'm trying to think about like who's from the Yukon. Yeah. But now it's Phoenix Copley. All right. Now it's time for our, our other favorite segment of the week. It's uh, it's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly oh, look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's our weekly look at the uh, foibles and hyperbole and uh, general struggles of the hockey media. Uh, I, I, Justin Bourne is a friend of mine. Justin Bourne worked for me at Puck Daddy. Justin Bourne is an extraordinarily talented writer and, and p- perhaps one of the first former players to really transition successfully to, uh, being a fantastic writer. He's also a guy that believes that the Carolina Hur- Hurricanes storm surge is, uh, taking away valuable post-game workout time from players, said no. Bourne. Um, this is about also the fact that it's kind of an embarrassment. Obviously, it changes nothing, and it's fun. I just can't imagine personally being a player with serious designs on a cup, sitting in a team meeting where a guy suggests we do duck-duck-goose celebrations if we win the hockey match, and being like, yes, we are on track. Later on on Twitter, in defending this take, he uh, he said that it takes away valuable post-game uh, prep time for the players. Prep time that I'm sure includes glad handing season ticket holders, the owner's friends, and also talking to their buddies from the other team in the hallway. Um, on this one, it's just, I, I just, I just can't get down with it. Like when, when the guy saying, Hey, let's play duck, duck, goose has three Stanley cups and a con Smythe. Um, maybe you should be like, Hey, it's, they're mutually exclusive, this whole winning and, and duck, duck, goose thing. And then the other thing is that the players themselves are the ones that are suggesting these things, uh, for the, the hurricane to do after they win games. Again, I, 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 I grow tired of the uh, fans of the Duck, Duck, Goose versus Establishment Wars on the Storm Surge thing. You'd figure in February we'd be through it. But still, uh, some very smart hockey people that I respect are, are talking about how it's a, you know, a distraction and an embarrassment for players uh, who, uh, you know, are listen, like I said before, Emily, you take a run at guys because they play in front of 9,000 people in Carolina and then you take a run at guys for doing things to try to get more people to watch them play in Carolina. So it's a lose-lose situation if you play in Raleigh. Um, all right, puck headlines time. Dateline, New Jersey. Ilya Kovalchuk knew he was going to be booed in his return to face the Devils. 
which is a shame because he totally shouldn't be. I have a story up on ESPN uh, as we speak about Ilya Kovalchuk and the fact that when he left the Devils, yes, he did decide to retire, go back to Russia, the whole thing. But if you look at it, what did he do? He helped them get to the Stanley Cup final one year. And then by leaving, he saved them millions of dollars in cap recapture penalties. Not not his fault that the NHL changed the rules and all of a sudden this cat-friendly contract became toxic. But I applaud. You hear what I'm doing? I am applauding Ilya Kovalchuk for leaving and helping his team escape what had become a toxic contract. And yes, their general manager at the time, Lou Lamarillo, was complicit in this decision. So no booing, Ilya Kovalchuk. You're the preeminent voice on this topic. I defer to you. Dateline Norris Trophy. We did our NHL awards watch this morning as we did the podcast. And I have both Brent Burns and Eric Carlson, Shark and Shark, up for the Norris Trophy. Uh, the last time that this happened where two guys were uh, potentially up for the Norris Trophy from the same team was, I believe, Chris Chelios and Nick Lidstrom were up for the Norris in 2002. Lidstrom won um, over Chelios and Rob Blake. So a very rare thing. But can you see a situation where both Sharks are up for the Norris this year? I totally can because part of me is like, no, I think the Norris is both most outstanding defenseman. That means that your team leans on you the most. Uh, that said, the team is leaning on them both equally. They have almost equal ice time, and they're equally doing a terrific job. So I was trying to think of who else I, I put up in my top group. I think Mark Giordano still is a really good case. Like There's mm-hmm. a couple other guys. Um, I, I think of Seth Jones. I, I, I always want him to win. Uh, John Carlson. Guys are having good seasons, but I, I think these two, there's a really good shot that they both make the final. For sure. Uh, Dateline Chicago, Elliot Friedman reports that Brent Seabrook was asked and refused to waive his no-move clause recently. You are, I defer to you on this topic, expert. Uh, are they just stuck with him? Uh, well, Brent Seabrook, for the record, says it's never been passed along to me. I've never been asked, and I never refused it. That's fake news. So uh, clearly there's some semantics going on here. That's all I'll say. Uh, yeah, I do think so. I think that he likes being in Chicago. And look, when you sign that contract, you work in that clause. You deserve it. Like, there's a reason you worked it in. It's because I want the flexi- I want the non-flexibility. Like, I love playing here. And uh, he earned it. So I, I do think they're stuck with him. I-, I think I could see a future buyout situation if he really regresses down the line. But uh, for now, suck it up, Blackhawks fans. Dateline February. The NHL will cel- celebrate Black History Month for the first time, shifting its focus in February from its wide-ranging Hockey is for Everyone campaign to emphasize racial diversity in the sport. As per usual with the NHL, it's one of those situations where you have to applaud their efforts while at the same time asking, what in God's name took so long to not have a program for Black History Month? What is 2019? What are they doing? I don't have an, I don't have an answer. I just, I, I mean, I, I, I just, I'm just stunned by that. You know? They're doing cool things. They've got this mobile museum, uh, that's going on the road. I'm sure Willie O'Ree, as he's yeah. done every year, will be out and about. And sorry, will Willie O'Ree be in the museum? Will he just roll from city to city, and they'll just open the door, and he just kind of oh, kind of that man is everywhere. Pops and out. Can I tell you, it was really cute actually. When I re- um, recorded with Kendall last week in the hotel lobby, uh, he was in the lobby beforehand and just smiling, and they shared this really cute moment. And he was like, "She was like, thank you for everything you do for hockey," and he was like, "Thank you for everything you do for hockey." And it was really cute. My point of telling the story is that like. That man, I don't know how old he is, but is in better shape than anyone, is an incredible ambassador for the game, and the NHL is just so lucky to have him and his 
amazing disposition. So good on the NHL for doing Black History Month roughly 20 to 25 years too late. All right, all right now it's time for the rant line. This is David from Ames, Iowa, and I wanted to rant against what I saw on Wednesday Night Hockey on NBC Sports Network tonight between the glass. And I thought having Kendall Coinlon was fantastic and having her between the glass and directing her to which team was on which bench on either side of them and also saying, hey, we signed the paycheck. No, you don't. You're between the glass. You're not an executive. You don't sign her paycheck. She accepted the invitation to be there and also is a great advocate for the sport. So I don't understand why that would occur to Mr. Between the Glass, he who shall not be named. (laughs) Yeah, end of rant. It's ridiculous. No one says that. No one says that. Yeah, this whole thing uh, got real interesting, I think, after we recorded last week, right? I don't think we really talked about this on the show um, when we had Kendall on. But the Pierre Maguire talking down to Kendall Coyne, Kendall Coyne, I thought, handled everything as expertly as you possibly could want someone to do, which is to rescue Pierre Maguire from the abyss of criticism uh, by saying, hey, you know, we're friends. And he just sort of said something. He was happy for me. He was too happy. He was too happy. But also acknowledging, you know, in contrast to what a lot of people thought, acknowledging that what he said was kind of beat and like, it's okay if you're angry about it. Like if I was sitting at home, I'd be angry about it. So I thought she really did a great job in not, um, fake newsing the outrage about what happened to her while at the same time trying to, you know, not bury Pierre. Uh, but I think our ranter said everything that needs to be said about it. It was an embarrassing moment and, uh, and it, it unfortunately, uh, took away from, from coin getting that opportunity in NBC um, but yeah, like, ain't, ain't, ain't no moment in, in the history of NBC where Pierre Maguire turns to Patrick Sharp and says, listen, you're not a fan tonight. You're an analyst. Ruh, 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 ruh. She's a professional hockey player. So that's really all I have to say about that. You have anything to add? Nope. That sums it up. I think women deal with that every day. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this long, that means that you like us. So you should rate us or review us on iTunes. And uh, you can find my work at Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. I'm on Twitter at Wyshynski, W-Y-S-H-Y-N-S-K-I. And you can read both of our stuffs on ESPN. Our thanks to producer Ryan for putting together this podcast like a jigsaw puzzle dropped down a flight of stairs because we had to record things at different times because of the Austin Matthews stuff. Um, so there you go. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.